Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hello, friends. It's been a long time since I've preached a regular sermon because for nearly two months we've been doing our Body Life series, and it's been fabulous. We've been doing Get to Know You interviews. And so different members of our church family have been participating in that. That has been so much fun. And we've had uh, a number of other parts of our worship gatherings that have been more interactive and and just small sermonettes. So um, I'm just getting back to this preaching thing. And I will tell you before we really jump in today that we're going to be sharing, well, on Sunday we shared the Lord's Supper together. And so at the end of this time, if you're catching this on the podcast or on the website, we're going, you'll have an opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper. And so I would invite you to, even before we jump in here, to grab something, uh, whether it's tortilla chips and hot tea or ice water, or if you've got uh, wine and bread, fabulous, or juice and bread, um, something that can be a tangible symbol of God's love and forgiveness to you that you can uh, receive at the end of this time. So let's jump in. Sometimes life catches us off guard. Life is hard in different ways than we anticipate. For instance, how many times have you finished a day or a week and you look back at the way things unfolded and the complexity and the mess and the stress and you say to yourself, well, I certainly didn't see that coming. And it happens to all of us. We say things, we make decisions, we do things in the moment that we really didn't plan on saying or doing. They're the kind of moments that we are often ashamed of. They're the kind of moments that we really wouldn't want to become our defining moment. We wouldn't want those moments recorded, but they happen. Life throws a perfect storm our way. It's like Life gets turned upside down and we're struggling to get our footing. And it's rarely just one event that throws us off balance. It's usually a combination of events that come together in to form this deadly cocktail that leads us to say or do things that we regret. Now, if you simply recorded these kinds of moments verbatim without their context, And if you simply said, this week, you're going to say this. If someone told you, this week, you're going to say this. This week, you're going to make this decision. Well, a lot of those would say, 
really? Like, maybe we couldn't even imagine ourselves saying it or doing it. We say, no, I wouldn't. I, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to do that. But life is hard in different ways than we anticipate. And things rarely unravel in the same way we thought they would. And so life catches us off guard. What if at the very beginning of every week, you could have a sit down with Jesus and Jesus told you all of the potential pitfalls that you might face that week, kind of like a, a roadmap to the rocky terrain ahead. And Jesus says, okay, so this week you could end up completely blowing off someone's cry for help. This week you might flat out lie to someone this week, you could devastate someone close to you with damaging words. You could easily become so reactive to a situation that you do like potentially irreparable damage to the relationship. This week, you might stress eat 2,000 calories in a single sitting. This week, you could impulsively buy something worth hundreds of dollars that you'll later regret. If you had a heads up from Jesus... Do you think that you could dodge the pitfalls? If you just knew what not to do, would you be able to avoid at least half of the messes that you find yourself in? Could you navigate? Could you find a detour around the potholes and the traps and the complex situations that you find yourself in? Or would life still catch you off guard? The Gospels are filled with so many stories that all happen during this week, from Palm Sunday to Easter. There are so many good stories packed in there, and there's really no way to capture all of them together as a congregation in one week. But today we are looking at one of those stories. We're looking at a time when Jesus gave Peter a heads up about an upcoming pitfall. Uh, so you can find this story in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 14. So I want you to imagine being Peter as I relay this story to you. And many of us know this story so well that it could be easy to check out. So I want to ask you to pay attention to the way that you're imagining this story, because the way that you imagine it might actually be revealing something about how you think that Jesus sees you and how you see Jesus. So here we go. It was the night of Passover, and Jesus told his disciples Guys, you're all going to fall away from me. And he specifically told Peter, tonight before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Simon Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now to Peter, this sounded unbelievable. Peter made himself the exception. He told Jesus, Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And I can just see Peter imagining himself in front of an angry mob armed with clubs and out for blood. And Peter sees himself standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus against the mob. Like there's no way he's going to back down. And I can see Peter imagining himself in front of the great Jewish religious court, the Sanhedrin. And he's imagining himself standing arm to arm with Jesus against his opponents. He would argue he would be Jesus' strongest witness in the case. But then the night unfolded differently. I mean, talk about anticlimactic. There were no opponents. There was only a silent garden. There were sleepy disciples, and there was Jesus asking them to stay awake, asking them to pray. But staying awake was a struggle. They kept falling asleep, and Jesus kept waking Peter up. Peter, can't you keep watch with me for one hour? It's like, uh, hello, you can't stay awake and pray with me for an hour or two, but you claim that you would give your life for me? There's a disconnect here. And Jesus said to Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The conundrum of Peter is the conundrum that we all wrestle with. And it's that when our devotion is strong, we think we are strong. It's like, I feel really committed to God. So I must be pretty strong right now. We know that our intentions are good. And so we all make ourselves the exception to the rule. Peter already knew his intentions were good. He knew like if an angry mob shows up, I know what I'm going to do. So why stay up waiting for them? And so hours passed and Peter slept and here came the mob. And Peter did just what he had imagined himself doing. Jesus said that he was going to disown him, and so Peter did the opposite. He attacked the mob for the sake of Jesus. And I can just imagine Peter thinking that he's passing the test with flying colors, out with his sword, whack. He drew blood, a man is screaming, his ears on the ground, his head is bleeding, and the adrenaline's flowing, and Peter's ready to do battle. And I doubt that anyone in that angry mob could have turned Peter's aggression off. Just like he had imagined it, there he was, standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus against an angry mob. But then suddenly Jesus was between Peter and the mob. And Jesus wasn't talking to the mob. He was talking to Peter. Peter, no more of this. Put your sword back in its place. Put it away. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Put it away. And Jesus was picking up the ear and miraculously putting it back on his opponent's bloody head. The screaming man became silent, calm. And then, just within moments, the mob had him. They had Jesus. They bound him. They arrested him. They, they drug him away. And the disciples fled, but not Peter. 
Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Even if everyone else disowns you, I'll never disown you. In the wee hours of the morning, they brought Jesus to the courtyard of the chief priest's house. The entire Sanhedrin was gathered there to make a ruling against Jesus before word got out to the public. And so there they were, the 71 men who were the supreme Jewish religious political legal council holding a kangaroo court against Jesus. Now, Peter needed a way into that courtyard, a a way to get closer to Jesus so that he could stand shoulder to shoulder with him against the Sanhedrin. But they wouldn't even let Peter in. They made him wait outside the courtyard door. Peter could imagine himself standing up for Jesus against an angry mob. He had done that. He could imagine himself being a witness for Jesus against the Sanhedrin. He was on his way into the courtyard to try to get a hearing with them if they'd let him in. But something unexpected stood between Peter and the Sanhedrin. It was a little child, a slave girl, at the courtyard gate, asking Peter, Sir, you you aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? Slave girls. The ultimate nobodies in Peter's world. Slave girls. They were children, slaves, and finally, this was a girl. That, That word means child. It's someone below the age of puberty. That's who this is describing. Children were the the most vulnerable members of society. They had no power, no status. This is a slave. Slaves were often regarded in Peter's world as things, tools rather than people. It wasn't uncommon for slaves to be treated in inhumane and forced, oppressive ways. In fact, this Greek word that the New Testament uses for slave girl It sometimes doubled for the word prostitute. Finally, this is a girl. And everyone knew that any self-respecting Jewish man would never be caught even speaking to a woman in public. Even his own wife he wouldn't be caught speaking to in public. It was forbidden. That was written in the Jewish writings of civil and ceremonial law, the Mishnah. And so... This little slave girl at the courtyard gate was the kind of person who Peter had shooed away from Jesus, trying to protect Jesus' time. Like, get it, get these kids away from Jesus. And this little slave girl was the exact kind of person that Jesus had said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. A little slave girl, the ultimate nobodies. Peter, eager to get inside the courtyard, eager to stand up for Jesus, just muttered some kind of an answer to the little child. No, no, I'm not. Brush past. Like, does it matter what you say to a nobody? To someone you're not even supposed to be talking to? To someone who's not supposed to be talking to you? A non-person? A farm tool, if you will? Peter moved over to the fire. He was assessing the situation, trying to figure out his next move. Things were happening much too quickly. Jesus was already being condemned. They were already saying that he was worthy of death. 
they were already punching him in the face and spitting on him and slapping him. What to do next? Another little slave girl, a little girl that was tending the fire, spoke up to the people standing around the fire. This fellow, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. Children have a way of blabbing out the things that adults would rather ignore. Peter had already brushed one child slave away. Now another? This night was already hard enough. He was focused on how to get himself involved in the legal proceedings and what he was going to say to the Sanhedrin. And frustrated, he just tried to sidestep the child slave who shouldn't be talking at all. Look, I don't know the man. Like, what's a little doctored information spoken to a farm tool, to a child? As if this child understood what was at stake. After all, Peter was simply protecting himself enough in this situation so that he could get into a position to try to protect Jesus. It would not surprise me at all if Peter didn't consider these two comments to these two different slave girls as a denial of Jesus, if he was just completely looking past these moments. But he missed a beat because now the people standing around the fire had heard his Galilean accent. He wasn't from here. He was from Galilee, where Jesus was from, and they all knew it. The brutalizing of Jesus in the kangaroo court continued, and for an entire hour, Peter stood there paralyzed. He couldn't leave Jesus, but he couldn't figure out what to say or do to stop all of this. And finally, another man standing around the fire spoke up. Certainly this man was with him. He's a Galilean. His accent gives him away. And Peter began cursing. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. He needed to get these people off his back so that he could figure out a way to get into that trial and protect Jesus. And then suddenly a rooster was crowing. And Jesus turned his battered face and looked across the courtyard straight at Peter. And the words that Jesus had said earlier echoed. Tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. And in that moment, Peter realized what he'd just done. Whatever happened to, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter had been prepared to face down an angry mob. He was trying to figure out how to navigate the Sanhedrin but he didn't see what actually came out of left field. Two nobodies, two little slave girls who refused to do what they were supposed to do and keep their mouths shut. They instead had asked him if he knew Jesus. Now here's the question. I want you to imagine the look on Jesus' face in that moment when he looked across the courtyard straight at Peter. What did Jesus' face look like? What was that expression? Was it a look of condemnation? I told you so, you arrogant coward. 
Was it a fierce glare of anger and disgust? I caught you. I heard that. You're going to pay for this. Was it a startled look of surprise? I can't believe you'd do that after I warned you. I already warned you about this. Was it a blank stare of resignation? You say you love me? I don't believe you. Nothing you do can hurt me anymore. The Gospels don't tell us the look on Jesus' face. Scripture often functions like a Rorschach inkblot test. It's, that's where the, the therapist shows you this picture. It's an inkblot, and they say, what do you see? But that inkblot isn't really a picture of anything. So what you see doesn't tell you anything about the picture. The picture could be anything, but it tells you something about the person looking at the picture. And this moment in the Gospels functions similarly. The look that we imagine on Jesus' face reveals something about the way we think that God sees us and how we see God. So what expression are you seeing on Jesus' face? Back to your life. We all screw up. And we often look right past the complex situations and scenarios and pitfalls that actually trip us up. They come from sources and factors that we don't expect and weren't looking for because life is hard in different ways than we anticipate. And so we all end up saying things and doing things that we regret, things we later feel guilt and shame about. And despite all of our good intentions, Sometimes we surprise ourselves, and then we carry the weight and the impact of those moments and ask, can the damage be undone? So in that moment, when you have just screwed up, what look do you imagine on Jesus' face? When you just said something, when you just did something that you hadn't planned on, except that life turned upside down. And about 15 things came out of left field and life went off script and you never imagined this scenario. And despite your best intentions, despite how strong your devotion was, despite how strong your spirit was, in a moment your flesh is weak. And you blew it. You said it. You did it. In that moment. That's the last moment you would even want to look at Jesus' face. But what look do you imagine on Jesus' face as he looks directly at you? The Gospels tell us that at the very beginning of the Last Supper, when Jesus was washing Judas' feet and telling Peter he was going to disown him, it says that Jesus loved them to the end. John 13, 1. He loved them to the end. I don't believe Jesus was surprised. I don't think he was condemning. I don't think his look, his expression was disgust. I don't think it was resignation. I think his eyes were full of love and understanding and forgiveness for Peter. His heart hurt for Peter in the middle of this rock-bottom moment as he looked across the courtyard. 
Jesus saw this coming. Earlier that evening, he had told Peter, Look, I've prayed for you, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers and your sisters. Earlier that night, Jesus offered his disciples the wine and the bread of forgiveness, of Passover, telling them, this is my blood of the covenant. It's like it's my promise that I'm sticking with you. That's that picture. And it is poured out for many, or some translations would just say all, for the forgiveness of sins. Take this, drink it. And then he took the bread and he says, this is my body. It's given for you. Take it. Eat it. He loved them to the end. There's this old Jewish story, Miroslav Volf tells, well, he recounts it. And it goes like this. It's before God created the world, God foresaw all the sin that humans would commit. God saw all the pain, all of the destruction. God saw all the ways that humans would violate their relationship with him and with one another. And the only way God could continue with creation was to decide to forgive the world before even creating the world. The commitment to forgive comes before creation. And that's that same picture with Jesus. He he poured out his forgiveness to Peter before Peter ever disowned him. He served Peter and his disciples, the bread and the wine of forgiveness. Well, there they are that night, still arguing about who's the greatest. And they are there as those who are going to fall away and strike out with the sword in violence and disown and deny and, and betray Jesus. And he serves them the bread and the wine of forgiveness. And God pours his forgiveness out to you even before you violate your relationship with God and others. One of the hardest moments after we do those things that we regret is receiving love and forgiveness. It's the taking and the eating, the drinking, the accepting of what God is giving us. Part of that act is what the church has historically called confession, which is owning what you did. Part of receiving forgiveness is admitting the impact of what you did, the pain, the dysfunction, the destruction, the mess, the confusion that you caused. And then the other part is accepting forgiveness. It's believing that your creator loves you so unconditionally that, as Lewis Smead says, the wrongs you did are irrelevant to the way that God feels about you. You're completely forgiven. You don't feel like you deserve to receive that kind of love and forgiveness, that promise to have God stick with you. But the receiving is accepting that this is God saying, I'm still sticking with you. This is my promise. I'm I'm forgiving you. So before we take and eat 
and drink, I want to invite you to just take some time in silence for confession, to, to own your stuff, to sit with that and to recognize the impact of your words and your choices. It's not to, not to sit with that and beat yourself up, but to sit with that moment where you look across the courtyard into the loving eyes of Jesus and you do realize, despite my devotion, despite my good intentions, I did that. I said that. I caused that. And so I want to give you a moment to sit with that. And then when you're ready, I want to invite you to take that bread and that wine or whatever it is that you've come up with in your home, wherever you are, these symbols of God's unconditional love and acceptance and forgiveness. And as you take them to hear Jesus saying to you, I'm sticking with you. I forgive you. I love you to the end. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.